Welcome to The Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning independent pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delisio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Dennison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist. Welcome, Compounding World, and welcome to the latest episode of A Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast. This is Mike Delisio, and as always, joined by Sebastian Dennison. Trusty sidekick is ready to go. We got a couple of other guests on on hand. Yeah, we have our, our two favorite regulatory specialists who always make an appearance whenever we talk about USP guidelines. Uh, none, uh, none other than Director of Clinical Services, Mr. Matt Martin. Hey, everybody. Back. Good to be with y'all. Welcome back, Matt. I know you're you're famous in this arena. For those that have been linked to PCCA for a while, whenever there's a discussion around regulatory, um, your name comes up. You're probably synonymous with regulatory. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I think the running gag is that I read USP chapters to my kids at night at bedtime. So uh, that may or may not be true, but we'll let that rumor be out there. Well, if there's one thing for sure, you've probably memorized it. So I don't think you need to read anything. Uh, but welcome back to the podcast, Matt, and welcome to our Vice President of Clinical Services, Dr. AJ Day. Hey, everybody. Good to be with you. Yeah, AJ, it's always great to have you back in these conversations. Even just thinking about our audience, whenever we have a regulatory update to announce, they always seem to be one of the most popular episodes. And I, I guess you can say it's it's not a surprise. Um, compounding pharmacists always really want to know what's coming up, what's changing. And um, really, the month of November has been quite interesting. Um, when the compounding world heard that there was going to be revisions to chapter 795 and 797. Um, we're obviously going to unpack what this means in more detail, and that's the reason why both of you are joining us today. Um, I, I guess we can start off by just really discussing what are the major points that came up in these latest revisions posted on November 1st. We're obviously going to get a chance to talk about gu uh, guidelines and timelines, but the reality is what's in there that everyone really needs to know of so mike i'm i'm going to ask matt to to take the lead on some of that discussion but i want to point out something that you mentioned in the lead in which is the popularity of this topic it really points to the the goals that the compounding community strives towards compliance we want to know what are the expectations what are the standards what are the best practices and what are the steps that we can be doing as individual pharmacy practices, as well as as a compounding pharmacy community to make sure that we are compliant, that we're meeting and exceeding those standards. So um, I do applaud you guys for all of your efforts to get topics of interest out into the community on a regular basis. And of course, the compounding community directly for the evidence that you have you've shown in your interest in these topics you you want to do things that are right in the best interest of your patients and continually pushing your your quality improvement efforts and so uh, thank you for that so as we talk about these updated standards let's also recognize that your your updated standards are your minimum requirements if you will 
they're standards. They become requirements based off of your regulatory authority who's holding you accountable to that. And typically that's going to be your boards of pharmacy. It might be an accreditation organization if you are, are engaged in that. But think of these as your minimums. That doesn't mean that that's all you need to be doing. And most of you are doing more than that. So that's where we also talk about best practices and and what does it look like upon implementation. So, uh, Matt, I'll, I'll, I'll hand things off to you to, to kind of talk about what some of the uh, key updates of interest with these new standards are. Yeah, I think that's a great point to start out, AJ, that, that both these chapters, the new 795 and 797, uh, talk about themselves as the minimum standard. To that end, uh, I guess I'd take just a quick second to make sure to remind everybody about the FDA's uh, insanitary conditions guidance document. Uh, I've been talking about this for a little while now, but it's, it's a major focus for the agency. And I think that there's a lot of overlap uh, in that document with where we're going with some of the USP chapters and some of the focus areas. So I think it's important to, to make sure that everybody's very aware uh, of the insanitary conditions guidance and how it reflects on their practice as well in places that uh, they can go above the minimum standards uh, in USP. So let's talk a little bit about the timeline where the chapters are going. Uh, as you all are aware, the chapters were released November 1st. Uh, usually USP gives you six months to implement the chapters, um, but there were some requests for USP to give a longer timeline for implementation, and that's what they've done. So the chapters don't go into effect until November 1st of 2023. So they've given a full year for these chapters to be implemented. Uh, the other thing that's going to be really important, not only do we have the new 795 and the new 797, but the fact that these chapters will exist, they will now officially recognize Chapter 800 for hazardous drugs. Uh, and so when the new 795 and 797 go in on November 1st, 2023, USP 800 is coming along with it. So if your board of pharmacy requires you to have compliance with USP, not only do you have new 795, 797 to comply with, you also have USP 800. Now, to be fair, there's various uh, approaches to USP from boards of pharmacy. Uh, some of them are prevented from wholesale adopting uh, USP chapters by reference. They can't just say follow USP chapter whatever. Some of them write specific regulations that are very close to USP but may not be uh, exact. So you need to know what those uh, circumstances are for the boards of pharmacy that you hold a license with uh, as a pharmacy and know what their approaches uh, may be to this and see if you want to have any input as they uh, consider these new chapters or anything that you may have uh, a particular concern with. But, but on the whole, we're looking at a new 795, a new 797 and 800, uh, November 1st, 2023. Uh, if you don't have access to the new 795, 797, or you've been looking for it, um, some people were maybe a little bit confused because previously when the revisions were out, the proposed revisions, those were publicly available. You could just go to the USP website, click on them, download them. That's not the case for the revised chapters. Now that USP is um, most likely done with their revision process, um, you actually have to purchase access to USP uh, through USP, okay? And you've got a couple of options. One of those is the compounding compendium, which will give you the USP chapters relevant to compounding according to USP. 
The other option that you have is more expensive, but I, I do think it's worth it, uh, is to get access to the full USP where you'll get not, not only the chapters, but also access to the chemical and product monographs, um, which I think is really helpful as you consider how to apply certificate of analysis uh, calculations to your compounded formulation. So uh, I don't have any role in, you know, in selling the USP or, or receiving anything from it, but I, I would encourage everybody to go out and get access to uh, the full USP so that you have all of the information um, that USP can, can give to you. So uh, inter Oh, go ahead. So Matt, I was just going to say like, and I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, so we're talking about three distinct chapters that are now coming into force in the next year. And, and this is going to be pretty overwhelming for a lot of people. And so I know that you probably have already a train of thought going, but do we have any sort of plan or resources where our team is going to kind of jump in? This might be an offside question early in the podcast. Well, yeah, we do. We do have a number of resources available uh, already. You know, these revisions, uh, at least the proposed versions, have been around for uh, a couple of years now, and so we've been working on resources to help people uh, work towards compliance or implement uh, strategies for some of these things. So when we look at uh, starting with 795, one of the big focuses is on training. Uh, and competencies. So it's it's one thing to train people. It's another thing to make sure that that training gets documented, right? Uh, and then with the competencies, it's not only about training and making sure that people have just the knowledge to do compounding, but they can also demonstrate their ability to perform different types of techniques, use different pieces of equipment. Uh, and so that also, that observation of that technique uh, has to be documented as well. And so there's a specific list of things that have to be covered uh, in the training. And so as far as developing resources, we do have a resource for this training aspect of it uh, called e-learning. And so people can uh, sign up for their pharmacies to have access to e-learning. We have modules that they can work through on different types of compounding or uh, safety in compounding or understanding SOPs, all these different areas. Uh, and then the training uh, and the uh, passing of, of tests and quizzes related to that is all tracked within the e-learning program so that you can have that documentation uh, of that training. Now you'll need to do that observation of technique uh, in the pharmacy, right? That's not a thing that will be conducted in a virtual environment. So there'll need to be those competencies uh, as well. So I didn't mean to derail you. So back to fundamental changes, and you've already just started talking about training, but fundamentally, what are the biggest changes you see in each chapter separately? So let's start with 795. What are you seeing different there? I mean, I think the biggest thing is that we're we're talking about some differences in the focus. Um, the focus is on the quality of the compounding environment. The possibility of microbial contamination gets a lot more discussion in the new 795. Uh, perhaps some people might have the idea of like, oh, it's non-sterile compounding. Why, why do we need to talk about this? Well, there's multiple USP chapters, 61, 62, that look at total microbial contamination and um, specific objectionable microorganisms in non-sterile compounds, depending on the route of administration. Uh, and so there's, there's a bigger focus on 
uh, the cleanliness of the compounding environment, the cleaning products and processes and frequencies uh, in the chapter. And this kind of aligns with, with what I was mentioning about FDA's insanitary conditions guidance document being focused on the same things, cleanliness of the facility and also prevention of uh, cross-contamination. Uh, other big aspect is going to be a new term, water activity. Uh, we're talking about uh, whether or not water is freely available in a substance to either support microbial growth uh, or interact with drugs to possibly lead to breakdown of those drugs through processes like hydrolysis. Uh, and so when we talk about water activity, we're not talking about how much water is in something, but how much water is actually available to uh, be involved in chemical reactions. And then for both chapters, when we start talking about certain aspects of extending BUDs, we're not talking about potency over time studies, but rather stability indicating assays, which is a, a whole new world related to extending beyond use dates and the level of data that's required. You know, Matt, to, to continue that discussion of the water activity, I think you made a very uh, important distinction. This is not a measure of the amount of water. So some people look at the threshold of a water activity of less than or greater than 0.6, and they're thinking, oh, that's a percent. It's not a percent. There's actually not a unit associated with that. And so 0.6 is the threshold um, for the support of microbiological growth or for uh, certain types of chemical reactions uh, that can impact the stability of your formulation. And USP is also clear that they are not expecting compounders to go out and test water activity. You can if you need to or if you want to. There are lots of different labs that can do water activity testing. They provide a table of your common compounded dosage forms and the calculated or tested water activity for those dosage forms. And as long as you're making one of those typical dosage forms, you can follow the water activity chart provided in 795. Now, I don't have the chapter in front of me right now, but I looked at it a couple times over the past few weeks, and I believe it's table number three. And then table number four goes into your BUD limits, what kind of beyond use date can you assign to that compounded formulation um, in the absence of additional data. That terminology is also something that's new. In the past, we've typically looked at that as your default beyond use date. And USP has been very explicit in this current update that they're not suggesting that these are defaults, but these would be your limits, your maximum dates that you could assign in the absence of additional data. So if you do have something that suggests a shorter shelf life is necessary due to the physical chemical stability of your active ingredient, for example, or the propensity for it to support microbiological growth, then you need to assign that shorter date. So the, the table provided in the chapter is your limit. It's not your default. It is a very subtle distinction, but that then leads into stability indicating assay and appropriate testing and quality um, analysis after, after uh, compounding. Yeah, with, we, with the specific formulation, the specific container closure system and, and storage conditions, those things need to be... Um, you know, detailed and then your stability indicating assay. One of the big questions is, well, why do we need to do that? And, and to put it mo as simple as I can think to, um, with this typical potency over time study that we've done, you can you, elute your peaks of your API. 
but it's not specific or sensitive enough to separate and to quantify your degradants and um, contaminants. So with the stability indicating assay, you can you can separate, so you can identify any degradant peaks as well as quantify, so you can see if they've reached or exceeded a threshold of allowable limits on, on those components as well. So that's really the big value that you get with the stability indicating assay. You know not just about your parent molecule, but also potential degradants that are there, and you can measure those and you can identify those. And those are really important for patient safety. So that's from a scientific perspective why USP really is pushing for stability indicating assays, and those become a requirement if you're going to extend the beyond use date past the limits that are presented in the chapter um, up to a maximum of 180 days. And my understanding is any deviations from process uh, concentration and chemical uh, supply options uh, destroys the data effectively because you, substitutions or deviations, you can't claim that the study is exact. Yeah, yeah. So to put it plainly, if you want to use somebody else's data and apply it in your facility, you have to follow their process that generated that data exactly. Once you start making deviations, then how do we know that that data is going to hold true under the circumstances of those deviations? So um, that that's very clear within the chapter. Something that um, has gotten a lot of attention since the pr proposed version of the chapter a few years ago is, is flavors. Um, Matt, I'm going to ask for you to chime in and talk a little bit about uh, the document that USP put out. This is an addendum to the chapter that specifically addresses flavoring. Yeah, so if you go to the USP site for the revisions to the chapters, there's some additional documents there uh, supporting documents, but one of them that's generated the most conversation is on flavors. And to say that flavoring, when we talk about adding flavor to a commercial product, you know, like a typical, say, amoxicillin suspension, something like that, that that is actually compounding, that that's not a part of the FDA approved product. Uh, and they go on to point out the various chemical entities that can be in flavors and that their uh, addition to an approved drug product the effect of that is not known. So it could affect the stability uh, of the drug product. Uh, and when we look at this, just from a, reg from a purely regulatory standpoint, uh, FDA approved drug products are approved as specific formulations with specific ingredients. Uh, and those flavors that are being added to those products uh, are not part of the approved formulation. So uh, I, I don't know that there was a different place for them to conclude uh, because there's no mention of the addition of flavoring agents uh, in the package insert or specific flavors uh, to add to it. So I know this is, uh, you know, create a lot of conversation, but I, I think from a purely from a regulatory standpoint, you know, we can understand why they've made those statements about those additions of flavors being compounding uh, and, and recognizing at times where we've worked with various uh, flavoring agents and seen them make changes to the stability of compounded preparations. Uh, you know, I, I have to agree with, with that view. A lot of the discussion that came about from the committee during the recent uh, open forum that they had for both. They had one on 795 and 797. Obviously, the topic of flavoring came up with 795. I believe that was November 8th. Um, 
when the questions about flavors came up were just various chemical components that are naturally inherent to flavoring uh, additives, um, aldehydes and ketones and other reactionary substances that can impact the stability of your formulations. So there are numerous examples. We've got quite a bit of experience with uh, formulations that have passed uh, stability indicating assays and even uh, back in the day just potency testing um, with some flavors and failed with others. Some of those formulations were dry powders and I myself have some experience with that. So even without an aqueous environment they can they can cause degradation of some API. So this doesn't mean that flavors are bad or that we can't use them. It just means we need to know more about the impact that they have on the integrity of our formulation. So doing that testing is the way that you need to approach the addition of flavors. It is compounding. It's explicitly addressed within 795. And I know that that's going to be a pain point for some of our audience, but it, it is the truth. So... And and I, I could, I'm sure we could go deeper and deeper into these conversations. I'm sure there will be a lot more of those conversations. But Matt, kind of back to these, any other fundamental changes you see in 795 or did you want to move on to 797? Because we are limited in our in our total scope today. Well, I, I think one thing to mention while we've got an opportunity here is that with the changes in the beyond use dates, right, for aqueous preparations, we've got either non-preserved aqueous preparations are going to get a 14-day refrigerated BUD in the new 795, and preserved aqueous formulations are going to get up to a 35-day uh, beyond use date, that those are for when these chapters go into place. Uh, I'm sure that those 35-day preserved uh, possible BUDs uh, are uh, something that's going to be helpful uh, to everybody out there, but those can't necessarily be used right away unless your board of pharmacy were to take some sort of action uh, allowing for that. So um, as excited as people may be to have access to uh, something different and longer in terms of BUD for preserved aqueous preparations, just to uh, be cautious in uh, looking to apply those uh, until the chapters go into effect or unless your board gives you some explicit authorization to move forward with that uh, right away. One other quick point I'll, I'd like to make before we move on to 797. Within 795, the discussion of a CVE or containment ventilated enclosure, what we oftentimes will, will discuss as a powder containment hood, um, is addressed. And they talk about the need to assess your environment, assess the, the scope of the work that you're doing to identify the needs for powder containment. I think that that's absolutely critical that you're doing those assessments. Um, from my experience, I think that if you're crushing tablets, if you're weighing pure powders, if you're opening capsules, those are activities that are going to necessitate a powder containment hood. You're going to want to make sure that there's not exposure to your staff or to other compounds of particulates that's generated through those activities. So the utilization of powder containment hoods is going to be something else that is really propelled with this chapter, uh, with the update to this chapter. And I think that that's, that's long overdue from my perspective. I think these powder containment hoods are a tremendous asset in overall quality of our compounding uh, process, as well as safety for, for the, the compounding personnel. I'm sure we could have a much longer conversation about hoods and, and just their overall effectiveness. I believe that there was a paper that we've undertaken with respect to the appropriateness of HEPA filtration and double HEPA filtration. Again, these are all resources that you can you can find uh, and then reach out to our clinical services team if you have further questions about these. 
So Matt, are you ready? 797, high overview. What are the big fundamental changes? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people who are looking at their sterile practice and thinking like, all right, are, you know, how far are we going to have to change? So I think what we've seen is that there's a, a fundamental shift in how we think about sterile preparations. Right now, 797 speaks to low, medium, and high risk sterile preparations. And that whole framework is now gone. Uh, in the new 797. We don't have that anymore. We've got category one, two, and three that start to differentiate sterile compounds based on where they're made and what types of controls uh, are put in place, what the frequency of environmental monitoring, what the frequency of, of uh, sporicidal being used in those environments, what the garb is like, uh, and start to differentiate more, a little bit more about process uh, and how that relates to the possibility or not of, of contamination. And so we've got a totally different framework here. So for the most part, most people listening to this podcast are probably going to be focused more in the area of category two and three. Uh, category one is, is really for having a hood in a defined space, but not necessarily a, uh, you know, anteroom, clean room type or clean room suite setup. Uh, and so that's going to be probably more so in health systems and more immediate use preparations. Um, but category two and three, it starts to become a question of what type of beyond use date will be acceptable for your practice, for your patients, and what those requirements uh, are to differentiate between those and the types of beyond use dates uh, that you're going to get. And I know we're probably going to have a couple more bigger scale discussions about the differentiation of categories. Um, this leads into beyond use dates with respect to sterile preps and the differentiation because of those categories. Yeah. So, and so category two is kind of limited. So, uh, there's a there's a group within category two for aseptically pro processed sterile preparations, and if you aseptically processed means that you're going to sterilize it by filtration, right? Versus terminal sterilization, autoclave, or dry heat oven. But but many compounds are going to be sterilized by filtration, uh, and so the longest refrigerated beyond use date you can have in category two once you have passed a sterility test for that batch uh, is 45 days. Uh, and so I think there's some real questions about whether or not that's going to be sufficient for a lot of people's practice uh, or whether or not the, the possibility exists that the way the chapter is set up actually disincentivizes people from doing more testing of their sterile preparations and leads to people thinking about possibly having more of their sterile preparations uh, be stored under frozen conditions. Uh, because even under frozen conditions, you could get up to a 45 day beyond use date without that sterility testing. So which way will people decide to manage their practices? What will patients be accepting of in terms of their expectation of how they receive their medication as either frozen or refrigerated, you know, ready, you know, possibly ready to use versus having to take it out of the freezer, thaw it out, and then go back and, and use it. Uh, so category three, on the other hand, you do get about twice the beyond use date possibilities there, uh, whether we're talking about sterilization by filtration or autoclave and dry heat oven. So there are some 
longer beyond use dates. I, I think there's still some significant concern about, you know, the, the, the way the chapters talked about, it's like, well, you can get up to 180 day BUD. Yeah. If it's terminally sterilized category three and it's frozen, sure. But I, I don't know that that's what people were necessarily looking for. And category three comes with a host of additional uh, requirements. Uh, so those formulations are going to need a stability indicating assay. All the guard people have to wear has to be sterile and they can have no exposed skin. They've got more frequent environmental monitoring, more frequent sporocidal application. The, the formulations are sterility tested and the toxin tested. Um, still not a mention of potency testing, which is a, a question for me. Um, if it's a preserved formulation, then USP51 testing has to be done for the formulation. They've got an ISO, they've got to do a surface sample uh, in their ISO5, in their hood for each batch. Uh, each formulation is required to have uh, particulate testing done once for the formulation, container closure testing done once for the formulation. And on top of all of that, the batch size is now limited to 250 units if you're doing a sterility test on the batch. So there's a significant increase in the requirements, but there's also some limitations in terms of how much a compounder can produce for their, their patients per batch despite um, these requirements. So in our sterile world, uh, these are some pretty significant changes and you're going to see some changes in practice um, and certainly in scope. So where, where would you start if you were looking at your current practice and looking at these new regulations? Like what sort of gap analysis would you do or what would you, what would you fundamentally address first? Well, I think an increased frequency of environmental monitoring is useful independent of whatever the, the chapters are talking about, right? Current 797 is pretty limited in its approach to environmental monitoring. So uh, an increased frequency of environmental monitoring uh, at a very minimum basis to me is surface sampling, right? We're talking about the purchase of those plates. Uh, Eagles offers uh, plates that are stored at room temperature, which is very helpful versus some entities that have refrigerated plates. Uh, and that, that's easy to implement surface testing you know, rather immediately at a higher frequency if it's not already uh, being done. One thing the chapter doesn't get into is more fingertip monitoring. I think that's a worthy consideration as well to have some feedback on personnel. Um, so I, I think it would be valuable to be building that data and implementing systems to trend that environmental monitoring data so that you can look for the possibility of change uh, over time uh, using that data for the uh, ability to prevent possible further change in the control of the sterile compounding environment, you know, you putting that data to work. So, uh, and I know there are many of you that are already doing, uh, you know, much higher frequencies of environmental monitoring, some higher than uh, the chapters even talking about already. So, you know, but if, if not, uh, you know, I do think there's value in having that data to understand the state of control in the sterile compounding environment. All right, Matt. So something that just came up as well, and I know Seb alluded to this in the beginning of the podcast, you know, implications on USP 800. Um, there's obviously going to be questions circling around timelines, you know, expectations and a variety of other things as an offshoot of um, hazardous non-sterile compounding. So where do people go from here 
regardless of whether or not their state boards will enforce USP 800 or not. Yeah, I think that's a key point that when it comes to 800 and hazardous drugs and the prevention of cross-contamination with those or in FDA's uh, terminology, not only hazardous drugs, but what they deem to be highly potent drugs is something addressed by the insanitary conditions guidance document. So, uh, you know, I know some states have taken a look at 800 and decided that they don't plan to explicitly follow 800 or or felt that there were were problems with the chapter, what have you. Um, But FDA is still addressing this topic of cross-contamination and how hazardous drugs are handled through the insanitary conditions guidance. So sometimes there might be confusion that FDA is out there enforcing chapter 800. Uh, They're not. They're they're enforcing their view of insanitary conditions, and they provided a number of examples of their thoughts uh, in the guidance document. Uh, Some of y'all may also be aware of of some of the inspection reports that are out there that there's some prime examples from. So they look at hazardous drugs. They specifically, you know, talk about hormones, which are, uh, you know, estradiol, testosterone on the NIOSH list, but they also get into what they think of in terms of highly potent drugs like corticosteroids uh, or some of the opioids have come up uh, in in some of their thoughts as well. So there are other things beyond just the NIOSH list in this realm. So even if your state's not going to enforce 800, there's still a need to be um, focused on how hazardous drugs are handled and how you prevent cross-contamination. And that that gets into the types of agents that you use to clean with. Uh, I guess cleaning is this word that gets used for meaning all kinds of things. Cleaning actually has a specific definition in USP talking about removal of organic and inorganic material, dirts and sugars. But when we start talking about hazardous drugs and preventing cross-contamination, we're really talking about decontamination, the process to remove hazardous drugs from equipment and from work surfaces. And so there are uh, some products out there that have actually produced some data showing that they have this ability to remove hazardous drugs from surfaces. Uh, In addition, uh, Eagle has put forward a product called Surface Shield um, that will allow you to test for the presence of hazardous drugs. So if you want to start working toward building data to show that your processes for removing these drugs from equipment, from work surfaces uh, are achieving that goal, um, then Eagle has that option available for you as well. You know, Mike, I guess the other thing I should mention when you talk about timelines uh, is people are looking at implementing changes to their facilities related to their handling of hazardous drugs. Um, those timelines are already kind of extended. You know, there's supply chain uh, issues that still exist. So the timeline to get things like powder containment hoods or if you need to make changes to your facility, that can be an extended process. Um, it's not going to be a, a super quick uh, turnaround. Uh, and so I, I would encourage people to get involved with that uh, and take action on that and get those plans put together so they can execute on those plans and, and not be stuck, uh, unable to get the items and the equipment, uh, or if they're looking at a modular facility, whatever it is they're going to need, uh, air handling equipment, um, that they're not pushed out too far that they won't be able to comply within the appropriate timeline. Yeah, I think it's important, Matt, that you you also expanded on the idea. And I, I didn't mean to misspeak, 
by obviously only referencing to 800 in a non-sterile space, but obviously the implications on sterile hazardous compounding as well. Um, and then you just brought up a great point about facility management and what those needs look like. Um, and then obviously finding a suitable location if they are in a location that is extremely difficult to manage HVAC um, and the external ventilation of air. There's there's just a lot to consider. Um, and I know if those that have interest in facilities, build-outs, whether it was modular clean rooms, things that we've already discussed on the podcast, I highly encourage those to, to find our older episodes around uh, facilities, whether it's using the existing wall structure and potential adaptation to your pharmacy. And then likewise, for those that are interested in doing more of a modular build out that is a bit more, I'm not going to say complex, but um, finding the appropriate space to accommodate all that and then timelines around it. I think realistically, and I, I hate to, to timestamp our current podcast episode, but I would say, you know, towards the end of 2022, we are still looking potentially anywhere between four and six months um, to have a full modular room installed. And that's just a reality of the marketplace. So those are all really important considerations as well. Yeah. And, you know, we, we almost thought we were going to have new chapters implemented once upon a time. And when that happened, as we got closer to the timeline, uh, more and more people got interested in adding more equipment to their facilities, right? And so in a short order, there was longer timelines to be able to acquire some of that equipment just due to increase in demand. And I, I kind of suspect that there's, you know, significant chances we move closer to November 1st, 2023, that demand is going to increase for some of these pieces of equipment, whether we're talking powder hoods or additional capsule machines or whatever it's going to be. And so, I, you know, not trying to push people to take action, you know, right this minute today, but I, I, I also wouldn't wait too long and be uh, frustrated that you can't get access to what you need in a, in a timeline that fits, fits your schedule. I, I'm going to jump in here, Matt, and I'm going to totally disagree with you. Uh, I'm going to push all of you to start getting the chapter, read it and analyze what your current practice is and what the difference is between what you're doing and what you need to be doing and get on that in short order. I'm not trying to stress you out, but I'm trying to say that if you're not moving on it shortly, you're going to be far, far behind. And the state board is not going to say, yeah, I know you were busy. Um, that's okay. We'll give you an extension. No, they're going to say, you're not compliant. You have to step back from the spatula. So my recommendation and AJ, Matt, Mike, correct me where I'm wrong. Get a hold of the chapters as fast as possible. Consume as much information as you can and do that gap analysis of your current practice and start making decisions on the difference between what you're doing and is it sufficient to be compliant and move towards those best practices. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. I, I just didn't want everybody to think I was pushing them to run out and buy tons of equipment like tomorrow and uh, make sure that they, but make sure they know that the realities of both supply chain and, and the demand curve that'll likely take place. And so that people don't wait too long and, and be pushed out. We, we saw it in Canada over the course of the last few years where we've had the adoption of new NAPR standards. And we're still seeing people who are struggling to get pro, um, products in for the exact same reason is that there's a supply chain issue, there's a uh, compliance timeline, and there's their practices being looked at in a different light with respect to the regulatory authority. So yeah, it's don't wait on getting information, but make, make informed decisions. 
Well, thanks to the both of you. And, and I know you also had other obligations and recorded a live webinar as well. So my assumption is that it probably goes into a bit more detail than the podcast episode that we just recorded. But for those that have interest in watching the webinar, it will be posted to PCCA's website in some capacity in the near future. Um, and the release of this episode is congruent with the release of that webinar episode as well. So I highly encourage anyone who does have questions around the uh, regulatory changes, proposed revisions, and everything that relates to USP 795, 797, and 800 to definitely uh, come back to our website and, and reference our USP resources um, as a central hub for all things that you need to know. You know, Mike, thanks for bringing up the the webinar that, that Matt's done. Um, I think that for me personally, I think that trying to understand what I need to do by reading USP. I'm not like Matt. I don't read USP chapters every night. I certainly don't read them to my kid, but he's training the next generation of compliance officers and pharmacists, right? So a little bit different there. Um, for me, it, USP chapters, reading them at night doesn't give me that warm, fuzzy feeling. I need a little bit more tangible insights on what I'm supposed to do with it. And so we've, we've taken that back and designed training programs about the implementation of USP. What does it actually look like? What are different um, ways that you can adopt technology, equipment, devices, PPE, workflow, um, lab setup, so that you can comply back in your own environment, depending on what kind of uh, scope of compounding you're engaged with. So for those of you who are, are thinking about, well, what does this look like in practical terms? What do I do with this in my own pharmacy practice? Check out the, the implementation course options. The, the core compounding uh, program talks about that as well, but implementation gets a little bit deeper. And I think there's a lot of value to be added to that. So as, as it interests you, as you think it might be a, um, something to explore, I'd, I'd highly encourage that. Uh, the feedback that we've gotten, um, whether that's from the PIC, the designated person, just the, the staff who are engaged in the process in general, is that it's extremely valuable for helping them um, put a course of, or at least a plan of action together for when they get back to their practice and, and start um, talking about evaluating their own workflow, the, the scope of compounding procedures that they're engaged in, the equipment that they're going to need, updating their SOPs, um, having more definition amongst uh, different roles for individuals within the organization, you know, all of those pieces that come together. Yeah. Thanks for that reminder, AJ. And I think even Matt commented earlier around the focus and the onus on training and, and what that internally looks like. And that is also a segue to our e-learning platform. Um, something else that we've also covered on the mortar and pestle in another episode that really covers that in more detail in regards to having a, a, a qualified training platform available um, for all, all internal staff members at the pharmacy. So just a variety of things for those to consider, whether it's core primary training, whether it's USP implementation courses, um, a variety of other USP resources that we have available to educate our membership base. Well, thanks again, gentlemen. It's always a pleasure having you. Like I said, you're probably two of our most famous guests on the podcast and our most well listened to. So thanks so much for sharing all your knowledge. I know this is condensed in audio platform, but for those that um, have more interest on this topic, that, that webinar that will be released will contain 
bit more visuals. And I know Matt goes into a bit more detail in some of the stuff that was discussed today. But thanks again to both of you. I, I hope that we have you back uh, the next time something happens with USB. Thanks for the invitation. And uh, we'll try to keep things entertaining. Okay, we'll talk again soon. You always do. Thanks again, Seb. Uh, and thanks again to all of our listeners out there for tuning into this week's episode. As always, a reminder to follow us along on social media, whether it's LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at PCCARX. And last but not least, hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss an episode. Until next time, this is Mike Delisio. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.